servant leadership is the most aspirational thing you'll ever try to do. If you think it's easy to think about others over yourself, I got news for you. You're going to mess up every couple of hours. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, I.D. Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if you are an organizational leader who's struggling with a decision you're needing to make, maybe you're looking for some leadership advice or tips, uh, and we could cover that as an episode, or you'd love to get a hold of one of our faculty members and pick their brain on some research or trends that are happening within various industries, or you just know of a great individual who would make an awesome guest for our show send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at IUPUI.edu. On today's episode, we have the honor of sitting down with Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, currently sitting on the board of directors for Chick-fil-A and U.S. Foods, and author of the amazing book, Dare to Serve, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others. Also might want to add a little footnote in there that she is a Kelly School grad. So Cheryl, just want to welcome you home and welcome back to the Kelly family. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. So in your book, it covers the main thesis is servant leadership and how leaders in organizations, you know, should look at how they build up others by how they themselves can sacrifice in order that others around them may be elevated and lifted up. And so, you know, once it's one of those buzzwords I feel in business, like you talk about culture, you talk about, you know, excellence, you have all these different buzzwords in business. So I would love to start with defining servant leadership, uh, you know, through your eyes so we can get on similar terms and then take off from there. Well, the first thing I feel compelled to explain to people is I feel like servant leadership has a bit of a bad reputation, uh, that it's somehow soft and it's unrelated to business performance. And so the first thing I always tell people is a servant leader it only thinks of themselves less often than they think of others. Okay, that, That's how simple it is, is it's simply think less of yourself, think more of others, because you're creating the environment for people to thrive and succeed. So my definition of a dare to serve leader is a leader who has the courage to take you to a bold destination, but the humility to go with you on that journey and create the conditions for you to thrive. So I absolutely am convicted that serving performs. I never separate those two words. Uh, I never separate courage from humility. It's bold. It's aggressive. It takes risks. Um, But it goes with the people uh, to help them thrive and perform. So we're talking about creating the best conditions for people to create the best performance results. That's great. Cheryl, um, in your book, you begin with a very important and impactful story about actually getting fired. This is probably something you don't see a lot of leaders admit. I wonder if you would mind sharing that part of your story. And of course, I have to uh, tell you that my favorite line in your book is where you say, I only wish I had been humbled sooner. So that sort of sets the stage, I think, for the story. Well, thank you. Uh, There is definitely a fascination with my getting fired. I've told the story often that I've come to understand it is one of my most important stories, Heidi, because 
um, for leaders uh, coming up the ranks, it's important for you to know that success is not your greatest teacher, but a failure is a whole notebook full of learning. And so I want to encourage people to step into their mistakes, their flops, their failures, whether they caused them or were circumstantial because they're learning opportunities, right? So here I am in what I thought was gonna be the pinnacle job of my career at KFC. I'm president of the US uh, company and so enthused about that opportunity to work with the KFC franchisees. But I did not create performance results on the timeline given, okay? Public company, in a hurry, <laughs> you know, I don't make any excuses for that. There was a timeline and I didn't hit it. Um, and so I was accountable for that and I got fired like many, many presidents and CEOs get fired. In fact, if you haven't been fired once in your career, you probably aren't a very good CEO or president because most of us have gone through a learning experience. And so it was incredibly humbling and humiliating, two different things, right? Um, humbling is kind of a step back and, and say, what can I learn? Humiliating is your picture on the business section of the Louisville Courier Journal and your kids saying, mama, what happened? You know, uh, that's humiliating. Um, so I would tell you in all honesty that it was one of the roughest times in my career. Um, it hurt. Um, it knocked my confidence. Um, it sent me into a fairly long period of reflection, wondering if I would ever resurface again. You know, that kind of reflection, kind of a little bit of hopelessness. Um, but the lesson I want all of you to remember it about is everything that I took out of the assessment of my failure at KFC became the tenant's of my success at Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Every single thing. There wouldn't have been a 10-year run at Popeye's if there had not been a failure before it. And when you think about, you know, embracing the tenets of being a servant leader and, and, and learning how to serve others to make a decision, you have to figure out who is it that you're serving? You know, and in, in your book, you ask readers to think about the people, you know, who they serve, you know, whether it be, is it the owners, the shareholders, the boss, the customers, the employees, there's a myriad of people, you know, who you could serve. But in your book, when you were the CEO of Popeye's, you you said that it's the franchise owner. Why did you answer the question in that way and determine that the franchise owner is the focus of who to serve? Well, uh, like all of you, I've been to business school where we discuss all the audiences that we serve, and it's a really long list. Um, my leadership team that day, we talked about this. We wrote them all down on the chart, right? And the CFOs, all for the shareholder and the marketing guys, all for the customer. And yeah, you know, everybody has a point of view. But I, I believe there's, there's nothing wrong with the stakeholder view that they all matter to some degree. But if you don't know where the primary customer is, you're not going to be able to get results for all those other customers. So that's what I was pushing the conversation to is who is the most important customer on this list that we serve? that when we serve them brilliantly, all the rest benefit. And so here's how that worked. We looked at the franchisee and said, this is the investor in our model. None of us brought any capital. 
right? We're just corporate yin yangs. So we didn't put the money down. They leased or built the building. They hired and trained the people. They opened the door, built the relationship in their community, and they serve day to day the end customer who buys the food. So we were humble enough to say we're not it. Um, and the shareholders not it either, because we can't directly do anything for the shareholder that changes the outcome, right? But we can do something for the franchise owner that creates a model that thrives for them, which is, of course means top line growth and profitability. And then we put metrics against it. We said uh, our strategic plan will change the trajectory of your business. We will drive top line revenues at a minimum of 3% a year. Your bottom line profits will double in five years and we will build 150 new restaurants a year because you'll want to invest and reinvest in the system. So really hard and fast metrics that measured how well we served those people central to our model. I mean, really in franchising, there is no business without them. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. The centrality issue really uh, hits home in terms of how you define how you're going to move forward, in a, especially in a turnaround situation. I was struck, Cheryl, by your walking into a situation that most others would run from. And, and you have this wonderful list in the book. You said sales and guest transactions and market share were declining. There was no pipeline of innovative new products. There was no national media plan, no compelling advertising message. Drive-through speed of service was dead last in the industry. Guest ratings were weak on almost all measures. The restaurants were in need of remodeling. Franchise owners were not making money and it was getting worse, and new restaurants were poorly performing. You, you joked that other than that, it's just all things are going pretty well. So I have to ask, who's the person that runs into that burning building? Why would you run in and not run away from that kind of situation? What, what is it that you saw that was compelling for you? Well, you're right. Not many people wanted that job, um, but I did. Um, my whole career has been about taking broken things and restoring them to what they were intended. I love rebuilding a brand and a company uh, from faltering to uh, fabulous. And I, I don't believe in product life cycles. You know, I think almost anything can be redeemed with the right business plan and leadership. And so I'm a perennial optimist. I was so excited the other day to find out that 83% of CEOs are optimists because I'm like off the charts. I think anything can be fixed. My husband says, except him. And so I'm really uh, excited and curious and fascinated by the complexity of that long list of things you mentioned, which were all true. And seven years of that is a really long time. I mean, one of the franchisees looked back at me and he said, I need to tell you, Cheryl, we're not going to trust you anytime soon. You're just our new foster parent and we're abused children. And I, oh my gosh, I've never forgotten that. I mean, he was like not very optimistic that we were the team that was going to make it happen. It only gave me more conviction to serve him well. Um, that's the kind of building I want to run into because you are, you're really saving jobs and opportunities and a future for people who signed up for that, right? I mean, no one bought a Popeye's franchise hoping that they'd run out of cash or go bankrupt or, 
you know, no, they bought it because they believed and they had hope that it would be a future for their families, for their communities, for employees, right? And so I want to be part of that. I want to make it right for them. But it is a unique uh, mindset that walks into burning buildings. Um, it is a unique skill set. I would tell you, I think you really need to make sure you have the skills. Like I, I'm really calm in crisis. They don't, I'm not scared by mess. Um, I'm really focused in my solution. You know, I find on the list of 43 things, I find three things we're going to fix. Um, I'm tenacious. I like never give up. We made that transformation happen in the fall of 2008 when the world was falling apart, you know, and I didn't quit. Um, and so, you know, make sure you're wired for that, right? Um, and then uh, I'll tell you the joys of seeing the other side of it far make up for the uh, hard walk it is in those early months and even years. It took us three years to materially turn around the company. And when you have management coming in or when you have a total, you know, upheaval of the old system and, you know, the old way of doing things that maybe haven't worked, you know, there can be a lot of pushback. You know, there can be a lot of individuals who are saying, you know, I'm, I'm not on board. This is how it's always done. This is not, you know, comfortable to me. Um, you know, so in those moments when you felt a lot of pushback and everything within you maybe wanted to, you know, just lash out or be emotional or, you know, make you question your philosophy of servant leadership, how did you as a leader, you know, work to inspire and instill yourself and keep the vision of what you have of what you see the potential in front of you so that you didn't derail when criticism and pushback within the organization started to really rise up? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is I think you have to back up and say, how did you come up with your plan to begin with? Because if you are putting your plan on an organization and they push back hard because you haven't done any listening uh, to start with. So I, I have a hard and fast rule that a listening tour is the beginning of every transformation. And that is purely bring your notebook, keep your mouth shut and ask curious questions because I believe the answers are always in the room in the organization. They know what's wrong. When I ask the organization, do you know our drive-throughs are slow? They're like, yeah, they've always been slow. That is no news. You know, would you like to fix that? Boy, that'd be amazing. That'd be a transformational idea. You know, so, Listening first gives you the right to bring a focus plan forward. The second thing I would tell you is, yes, uh, persistence and tenacity are very important in building alignment for a plan. The roadmap um, to results that we created, we talked about at every single meeting for not months, for years. We didn't change our strategies. We were committed to them. We were patient with feedback. And we took it in, but it did not take us off course. We got frustrated that the feedback sometimes never stopped um, and trust was slow to build. And then we basically had to remind ourselves, we're the seventh management team, okay? Uh, you you got to be patient with these entrepreneurs. They've been in this business 25 years. You've been in it three months. So, you know, being sure you check your frustration and, and say, okay, it's reasonable for them to still be fussing. I'm going to stick with it. Every once in a while, though, we did something tactical, which was 
if there was a pile of stuff the franchisees were kind of getting distracted by and mad about, like five things that were driving them crazy, we would just stop the meeting, get out a post-it board and say, what are the five things driving you crazy? And they would write them down and we'd say, okay, we'll work on them, period, you know, because they're in our way. We can't get our big idea done until we get these things, you know, like they didn't have broadband in the stores. Okay, stop everything, get broadband in the stores. You know, whatever the things are that are in the way of the big plan, you do have to stop and deal with and not pretend like you can just push through them and ignore their feedback. Cheryl, I'm, I'm struck by something you referred to almost as a mantra, and, and you used it when you were raising your kids. You say your attitude is your altitude. What do, you, what do you mean by that? And how did that help you in your role as CEO of Popeyes? Yeah, my kids would tell you it was really annoying, um, but they can remember it. Um, and I would tell you at work, um, it's super important because the leader instills energy, motivation, and inspiration. And that you're responsible for that. That's, that's in your job description. And so if you can't be for the organization, gung-ho, come to work with energy, positive, who's going to be? Um, and so I, I think a leader takes almost an oath to get that attitude straight before they get to the office. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of quiet time before you get in the car to go to work because your mindset needs to be right. They're counting on you today to be on your game. A leader off their game hurts everybody, even if it's just for a day or two. A leader who loses their mind or their temperament, right, in a meeting. Like I, I can tell you in 10 years, I did lose my mind and temper in a meeting with franchisees. And you know what happened? It'd been, I'd been there for a bit. One of the franchisees came over at the coffee break, put his arm around me like I was his daughter. And he said, you know, that's just not the Cheryl we know. And I said, you know what? you're right. That's not the Cheryl we know. And after the coffee break, Cheryl will be back. Because he basically was saying that's not what a leader does. And we don't need you to flip off a handle. We need you to keep it together. And um, it really helped me because while I'm not mercurial, I'm a human, right? And I can lose it too. So I think the important thing if you do lose it is, is to promptly acknowledge that's not who I want to be apologize for it and get back on, on your game. You know, when I really just think about serving leadership and the definition of what it means, you know, I'm, I'm always inclined to think about, you know, the characteristics of an individual, the qualities they possess inside, you know, their patience, humility, things along those lines. But yeah, in your book, one of the things you say is that as you argue that data is, is very important to, you know, being a servant leader, you know, so I'm just curious, why do you feel data is so important and, and a characteristic that makes an effective servant leader? Well, you know, the facts set you free is the shorthand way to say it from the emotions that overcome our logic, right? And so in franchising, um, uh, there is a lot of emotion because they're business startup people, right? And it is their business. They own the place. And there's a reason, right? If things aren't going well, they should be passionate. So I made our number one value about at Popeye's, we are passionate about what we do because it's going to be in the room. And so I used the facts as the counterbalance to the passion uh, because 
every time, by the way, when I got there, there were almost no facts available. What is the speed of our drive-through? Nobody knew. What was the profitability of individual restaurants? Nobody knew. What was our market share? Nobody knew. I couldn't believe there was a 30-year-old company and nobody knew anything about their facts. And so we built a database of facts that we tracked the entire 10 years that gave us another kind of credibility and trust, right? that we monitor our own performance by facts. And therefore, when we bring facts to the table, you can trust them too, franchisee, uh, to be a partner in this decision. Cheryl, at the Kelly School, our, our brand message is go from moment to momentum. And we talk a lot about pivotal moments. It strikes me that an absolutely pivotal moment was when you asked the franchising leadership team to commit to a national advertising campaign. I wonder if you would share that story and why that moment was so pivotal in the organization's turnaround. I'd be happy to. The the beginning of that story is that one of our assessments was we had enough restaurants to generate enough marketing fund to really move our market share. But that marketing money was being dispersed at the local level ineffectively. So we thought the facts said, the facts said we were at a pivot point that if we took the local money, rolled it up and bought national television advertising as a system, the business would perform better because we'd have more impact. Um, The problem was local funds meant local control. So a franchisee had to give up control to give the corporation those funds to market and that required trust and there wasn't a lot of trust. And so there was a, a, a lot of fear that we would mess that up, right? We, we would take their money and we would fail. And as I said earlier, they had some prior experience to base that on. So we brought in experts to show that pivot point from a media dollar standpoint that their impact would be doubled if they would spend at the national level. We brought them a campaign idea that we had tested as better and more impactful than the prior campaign. And we propose that we start slow and do three national promotions to prove it before we ask them to perennially do this. Well, we had enough trust that they heard us out in the presentation, but this was still very early. Um, we let, they asked us to leave the room after we made the pitch. The whole leadership team went out in the hallway going, what does that mean? That's never happened before. And we stood out there fretting. Does this mean they're going to tell us to take a hike? Does this mean they're just getting their votes lined up to agree? You know, what does it mean? We had no idea. And it was, I think, the Chicago O'Hare Hilton basement. It wasn't a very pretty place to wait. Um, We came back. We were called back in the room. And what they said, really, to be honest, blew us away. They said, okay, we heard your facts. We heard your proposal. Here's ours. We would like to do this for not three months. We'd like to do it for two years. But we would like the corporation to invest alongside of us. And we're asking you to go to the board and get $6 million to invest alongside. Now, what you need to know is that does, that's not how it works in franchising. Franchisors don't spend their dollars on marketing. So this was not the norm, and it was a big number. And oh, guess what? We didn't have a whole lot of facts on what the ROI would be on that $6 million. 
but they asked us to bet because they were going to bet. And that's what we did. We went back to the board. I remember going to my board of directors and saying, this is what I want to do, but I can't tell you it's a winner. I can just tell you everything lines up, but we think we need to press into it. So what's important about the story is the first dollar we invested in national media was in September of 2008, the very beginning of a very long, prolonged financial crisis. And most people would have said, that's crazy. Stop, pull the money back. Don't go. We did go. We said, we're going to invest into this and grow market share at a time where others are pulling back. And it was the beginning of the momentum that went on for several years to follow, that we had the courage to stick it out, see it through, and our plan worked better than we even thought it would. You know, we believe here on the show that an organization is only as strong as the individuals who are running them and leading them. Um, And, you know, as people are working and inspiring to grow in the ranks of their organization, branch out and and grow themselves as a leadership, uh, you know, and and look for promotions. You know, I was struck by uh, there was a a partial quote in your book, you know, that your pastor said that you that basically said in partial quote, you know, the leader's IQ declines with every promotion. And it kind of just stuck out to me as, as almost like a counterintuitive, you know, measure you'd feel like as they promote, they, they grow and they're, they're getting smarter. Uh, I was just curious to know, what did you mean by this? Or what does that quote kind of uh, mean or the point you're trying to make? I love that quote, because it's absolutely true. The leader's IQ declines with every promotion. And the reason why is the thing that increases is hubris self-interest increases with every promotion. In our restaurants, I used to tease the supervisors. I I said, why do you get bossy and put your hands on your hip when you get promoted to supervisor? You didn't do that as a manager of a restaurant. But as soon as you got three restaurants, you're a bossy, mean person because they think now I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm the know-it-all. Well, the first lesson of leadership is, is you actually know less with every promotion, you get farther from the source. And the leaders who know that have the most information because they spend their time, as we've talked a little bit earlier in this conversation, listening and learning, not prophesizing and lecturing and telling everybody else how smart they are. And But I'm telling you, this is more counterintuitive. If you look at yourself, and if you've you know, ever had a job, if it, you know, no matter where you started in high school with your first job, you know what I'm talking about because you've had a bossy bad boss that was all about themselves and didn't give a hoot about you. And how good was that organization? It was terrible, right? It was terrible. So I always say we know in our hearts what good leadership looked like, but here's the problem. We don't use that filter for our own leadership. Okay, so I'm... I really press you to make a list of the qualities of the best boss you've ever had and equally important, the worst boss you've ever had and define who you're going to be. Write it down because you're going to be some kind of boss. And by the way, your people are going to be able to write it down. They're going to write a full report. So why not do it consciously and intentionally? And I think if you do that, you get better with every promotion. That's a, that's a great exercise to, for everyone to go through. Cheryl, um, in one of the chapters, you describe this team building exercise that you and your team engaged in. It's called Starship. And I've actually used that in classes, but you really had a breakout moment that ultimately influenced 
the approach do you use for structuring cross-functional teams at Popeyes and solving some challenges? I wonder if you could describe sort of that exercise and then how you leveraged it. Well, Starship is one of those uh, learning games you do at an offsite that forms teams across the room that have to produce something like a manufacturing site, right? We do this in business school all the time, right? We have to make something widgets. Um, and then we assess our work and how we performed against the objectives. So it was that kind of exercise. We divided the room into three teams and the teams were given the kit, so to speak, and the instructions. And the way you evaluated the teams were how many of these starship little fans did they make and to what quality standard, right? There are two metrics, kind of a speed and a quality metric. Well, I just love this about humans. You can run that with any group of humans you, you pick. And some group will have amazing results and some group will bomb. Our group number three bombed like no group I've ever seen. They, you literally, you had to color your starships. Nobody on their team could color. You had to get along because it was a manufacturing line. They couldn't get along. You know, their leader was not doing his job. And, you know, everybody was complaining. It was almost hilarious, right, to just watch this unfold. It gave us three days of stuff to talk about. What happened in team three? But the fun thing about Starship is after you debrief the first round, you go back and do it again. And I'll cut to the chase. What happens in the end is team three produces the most high quality starships of all the teams because they figured out what they did wrong. They got people in the right jobs with the right skills. They got excited about winning. And sure enough, in the third round, they won by a country mile. I think they produced 29 starships, which was like twice as many as anybody else. It's crazy good. So I love illustrations like that, that just bring out what humanly happens when we get it wrong and when we get it right. You know, finally, as we begin to wrap things up, uh, I just want to ask you, you know, for a lot of women who have career aspirations of growing in their leadership, uh, of growing in, in within management, starting businesses, you know, it's, it's clear a lot of women, you know, face a lot of internal barriers that kind of hold them back and some external barriers as well um, to keep them out of leadership. And so when you, when you talk about servant leadership, you know, it already has this perception of being soft, but for a lot of women, you know, internalizing and trying to embrace and trying to break out on their own think of uh, servant leadership, it may be something that's like, oh, I don't want to be perceived any more negative than maybe I already am. So what would you say to women as using servant leadership as an empowering tool and how they can be empowered in in their own journey uh, through their careers? Well, I would tell you kind of from a personal standpoint, uh, servant leadership has allowed me to be my authentic self in leadership. And being my authentic self has been more effective than trying to be somebody else. Um, and I, it took me a while to get to that point of view. I don't think we understand that in our first job or first manager role. Uh, we don't have the confidence in ourselves, our skills, our attitudes. Our, but servant leadership really did unlock everything about my capability because I'm a relationship builder. I'm a collaborator. I'm a communicator. I'm persuasive. Um, I'm loving, you know, and I know that's not a business word, but darn it, I am. And so I, you know, it gave me permission to lead out of the model I want to live my life out of. But here's the thing. I always say it is not soft. Servant leadership is the most aspirational thing you'll ever try to do. If you think it's easy to think about others over yourself, 
I got news for you. You're going to mess up every couple of hours. So it's not easy. It's not soft. It's very tenacious. And it's very performance oriented because you're creating a place where people perform their best. But is it different than the cultural norms and leadership that have come up over the last hundred years? Yes, it is very different. It's very challenging to the current leadership models. And so in that sense, as women, we will be pushing up against the cultural model. We will be weird. But what I've discovered is there's a whole cohort of men that rather align with this model and just haven't had anybody to hang out and talk about it with. And I have led many men to assume this model as their authentic leadership style and feel freed to be better. Um, and uh, I, I don't have 100% success stats, but I think we can use this, women specifically, can use the servant leadership model to provoke the world to get more comfortable with our differences and to allow us to bring who we are to the table, not some you know, uh, clonish thing of expectations that we really can't be, right? Like one of the expectations I had to give up on early is that I was going to be on the golf course with a scratch handicap, you know? I had to give up on that. I don't have no athletic skills, no interest in the game. You know, that couldn't be my path to CEO. So, you know, we have to find, uh, in all seriousness, we have to find the leadership of approach that brings out our best uh, and enables us to lead teams to great things. And if that's a little different than the last hundred years, so be it. Let's bring it. Let's talk about it. I'll tell you what, when I taught at the MBA course um, a year and a half ago, there were a lot of men and women interested in talking about this. I actually think this is becoming the future leadership model because the generation behind me likes it better than what they saw in my generation. That's my forecast is that we're headed there. Again, Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, currently sitting on the board of directors for Chick-fil-A and U.S. Foods, and author of the book, Dare to Serve, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others. Thank you so much for honoring us with your time here on the ROI Podcast. It's been fun. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Heidi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week. 